You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast, www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, well, there's nothing you can't on the Savage Lovecast. Last week, Donald Trump managed to find the time to tweet about Pride Month for the first time since he was elected president. In between dismantling our democracy, watching Fox News, and attacking a woman of color, HRH Meghan Markle this time, Trump tweeted this. As we celebrate LGBT Pride Month and recognize the outstanding contributions LGBT people have made to our great nation, let us also stand in solidarity with the many LGBT people who live in dozens of countries worldwide that punish, imprison, and even execute individuals on the basis of their sexual orientations. That would include countries like Saudi Arabia which Trump is busily selling arms to and palling around with. But of course, the most shocking thing in that tweet was the word we, as we celebrate, we motherfucker, as Michelangelo Signorelli detailed in a piece at the Daily Beast, since taking office, Donald Trump has banned trans people from serving in the military, backed a so-called conscience rule that allows doctors, nurses, and EMTs to refuse to serve LGBT people if, you know, not letting a gay man or a trans woman bleed to death in the street or an ER waiting room violates their religious beliefs. He backed a new rule allowing homeless shelters to turn away trans people, trans people being likelier to experience homelessness than cis people, move to strip protections from the Affordable Care Act that bar discrimination based on sexual orientation and gender identity. He's also moved to lift a regulation that prevents federally funded adoption agencies from discriminating against same-sex couples. Those agencies funded in part, of course, with the tax dollars of same-sex couples. He's denied citizenship to the children of same-sex couples born via surrogacy abroad. And in addition to selecting an anti-LGBT bigot as his running mate, Mike fucking Pence, a man who, according to Trump himself, wants to hang gay people, Trump has appointed scores of anti-LGBT bigots to lifetime appointments on the federal courts. In addition to overturning Roe, it is highly likely that the Trump-McConnell pact illegitimate, compromised, and politicized Supreme Court will overturn Obergefell, the 2015 decision that legalized same-sex marriage in all 50 states. Donald Trump celebrating Pride Month for the first time since being elected president is a little like David Duke celebrating Juneteenth. Given his record, who would fall for that? Not queer people, not us. But that tweet wasn't meant for us. It was meant for straight people, straight voters and straight members of the media who will read that tweet and write something credulous in the run up to 2020 about Trump's quote unquote stated support for LGBT rights and how that quote unquote complicates his record on LGBT rights. This isn't a mixed record, as Signorelli warns the media at the Daily Beast in his long and terrific piece. It is brutal and abhorrent, Trump's record. And that is something reporters must be clear about, no matter what Trump says on Twitter or in a Fox News interview, a campaign speech, or anywhere else. Trump's Pride Month tweet is a little like that ex-gay march in D.C. last weekend that attracted tens of participants the laughable ex-game movement, the Jesus slapped the dick out of my mouth and he can slap the dick out of your mouth too crowd, that crowd of tens, they're not trying to reach gay people with the message that they can, with Jesus's help, choose to be straight. They're trying to reach straight people with that message still, 
And the message they're trying to send to straight people is this. This whole issue, this whole controversy, all this fighting about gay rights, it could all be over tomorrow. It could be over today if gay people would just stop being gay, which is a little like arguing that we can solve anti-Semitism by getting rid of the Jews. The ex-gay movement is designed to allow people to oppose gay rights while telling themselves they don't actually hate gay people. They love gay people so much they want to rescue them from gayness and get rid of gay people. People don't like to think of themselves as bigoted. And there are some people out there, a significant percentage of straight people who want to vote for Trump without feeling like they're backing someone who's attacking their gay, lesbian, bi, and trans coworkers, neighbors, and children. And that's what Trump's tweet is about. Creating ambiguity, providing a tiny fig leaf of cover, and scooping up the votes of that small subset of straight people, most of them Fox News viewers, who want to back Trump and be able to claim at the same time at Thanksgiving dinner that they aren't hurting their gay children or grandchildren. Or that sweet Shepard Smith guy. Trump celebrating Pride Month? Yeah, I don't believe it. And neither does Michael Brown, an evangelical Christian activist, writer, preacher, and bigot. He told his followers in a column, his followers being anti-LGBT bigots, one and all, that they shouldn't be alarmed by Trump's tweet. Trump has done more to oppose LGBT activism than support it. Brown wrote, Trump has no problem celebrating LGBT pride in a tweet while at the same time opposing LGBT civil equality. As much as it pains me to say this, I agree with Michael Brown. Trump has no problem lying his fucking face off during Pride Month and every other month of the year. I'm not going to tell you, listener, not to fall for this because I know that you, a listener of my program, wouldn't fall for this. But you may have relatives, you may have friends, you may have parents or grandparents who are at risk of falling for this. 2020, November, it's coming up. If you have relatives who claim that they support you and also want to support this fucking president, you need to get in their faces and do some screaming and yelling now. All right, coming up on today's show on the micro free edition of the Savage Lovecast, tons of your cues, lots of my A's, and on the magnum edition of the Savage Lovecast that you can subscribe to at savagelovecast.com. Twice as much show, more questions, more answers, and more guests, and no ads. Go to savagelovecast.com to subscribe. Sean Captain, freelance journalist, joins us to discuss where people have gone after Tumblr kicked off NSFW kicked off adult content, kicked off porn. Where did people wind up going? What's the new Tumblr? Sean Captain joins us to walk us through that. Hi, Dan. I'm a gay man in my late 20s living in the Pacific Northwest. I've spent the last couple of years in therapy, kind of working through some general like dating and relationship anxieties that I have. And I've, I've definitely gotten a better handle and understanding of myself at this. And as I have, I've kind of recently realized that I might be a I honestly can't really remember a time I ever felt romantic feelings towards someone. And I, it's like kind of a blank hole when I think about it. And I'm processing this since like the whole idea of ending up in a romantic relationship is kind of ingrained into my whole like identity and future self. But like the issue I'm kind of having right now is that everything I read online with like people who are aromantic are also asexual, which makes sense. But I still definitely identify as homosexual. Like, I still feel sexual attraction to men. Like, that's not in question. But And I really haven't been able to find any resources online for people who identify as aromantic and homosexual. So I guess my question to you is if you have any, like, 
advice or knowledge or if you've talked to anyone who is like homosexual and asexual, or if you could throw this out to your listeners to see if someone else might identify this way and have some advice, that would be great. Sometimes I think aromantics encounter more skepticism and stigma of a certain sort than even asexuals do, although aromantics are believed to be or placed on the asexual spectrum. An aromantic is a person with no interest in a romantic relationship. Just as some asexuals want to have romantic relationships, they want intimacy, they want even cuddling and some kissing and holding, they just don't want sex. There are people out there who want the sex, but they don't want the intimacy or the romantic attachment, the cuddling, the kissing, all the rest of it that comes bundled with an ongoing sexual relationship. An aromantic is not interested in any of that. And we look at people who are interested in sex but not interested in relationships and we think sex monster. We think damaged in some fundamental way. And a lot of people struggle with the same issues that you, caller, struggled with. This isn't what you wanted, a romantic relationship. This is what you should want, the culture told you. You should want a romantic commitment. You should want a partner. If that is what you want, if you want the thing the culture is telling you you're supposed to want, well, Yahtzee, you win and you're not going to feel a lot of conflict. And it's easy to say if that's not the thing that you want, okay, great, you don't have to have it. But a lot of people out there want to want the things they were told they're supposed to want, the things they were told good people do want. And we're told good people don't just want to have sex, don't just want to blow loads in, on, near others, particularly of the same sex. Good people want to do that dirty, disgusting sex thing in the context of a romantic, committed relationship that exonerates you for all the dirty sex things that you want to do. So it can take a person a while to really sift through what I was told I want, what it is I do want, and whether what I'm going for right now is not what I want, but what I've been told I'm supposed to want and what good people want. And it sounds like you've reached the end of that sifting process, that self-assessment. And you've concluded you want sex. You want a lot of gay sex. You don't want a relationship. Well, that's going to be a little easier for you than it would be for a straight guy. Dick's on tap everywhere. Dick is in great supply. If you put it out there that you are interested in friends with benefit situations, you're interested in one-offs or hookups, you're not interested in a relationship, you will get offers. Because you know that zap the culture puts on your head? This is what you're supposed to want. Whatever dose of that you got, women got a much more intense radioactive dose. It can take women a lot longer to realize that what they've been trying to get is not what they wanted, but what they were told they ought to want and should want and good people want. So finding women whose desires align with your own is going to be harder than finding dudes whose desires align with your own. I'm not saying you should go out there and look for other aromantically identified gay dudes. You just look for gay dudes and you will find some aromantic gay dudes. Probably couldn't put that word to it, but it's how they function. It's how they roll. You can also find plenty of gay dudes out there who are romantic, who are in committed romantic relationships that are not exclusive who don't want any romantic attachments on the side, but they do want sex with other guys on the side. And you are a perfect candidate for that kind of sex because you are not going to catch feelings and want to become their third or become that dude who's already married or partnered with somebody else, become his one and only. You're not going to want that. So you're a pretty safe guy for a partner dude to play with. But yeah, gay people, tiny percentage of the population. People on the asexual spectrum, tiny, tiny percentage, much smaller percentage of the population. People who are gay and on the asexual spectrum, oh my God, an infinitesimally small 
segment of the population. So there probably aren't going to be a lot of resources out there for the sexually active aromantic gay man. If there are and I don't know about them and somebody would like to call and share that info with us, we will put it on a future show. But I don't think you need a self-help group. You know what you want. You know who you are. You've been through therapy. You've worked it out. You've parsed your desires and your interests. And now you just need to get the fuck on with it. Stop worrying about how you identify. Stop looking around for a support group. And get out there and be honest with the guys that you're interested in being sexual with about your disinterest and any sort of romantic attachment, and you'll be fine. Hi, Dan. I'm calling from Florida. Question is, so me and my husband have been considering a threesome, and the problem is when I'm black, he's white. Mostly I'm interested in white guys, and definitely he's interested in black guys. How do we approach that situation? Because I'm not really interested in anyone he's really interested in. What what would your advice be for that? My advice would be not to consider a threesome singular, but to consider threesomes plural. Look to the straight folks, those straight heterosexual couples out there who are having three ways. Maybe one three-way is MMF, two dudes and the woman. And the next three-way is FFM, two women and the dude. And the straight couple who's interested in having three-ways, neither is going to be attracted to the same very special guest star equally or at all. And so they alternate very special guest stars, the highly evolved straight couples out there having three-ways. Or one time, she gets two dudes focusing all their attentions on her. Next time or another time, she gets two dudes focusing all of their time and attention on him. So what you do is you get out there and you find the white guy you'd like to have a three-way with and those two white guys focus all their time and attention on you during that first or second three-way. The other time, the previous time or the next time, you find a black dude that your husband's into and you two black dudes focus all your time and attention on your husband and you take turns like that highly evolved, completely heterosexual couple who are somehow able to have three-ways. You're a highly evolved gay couple. You can do this. You can have three ways. You just need to have more than one. Hi, Dan. 24-year-old straight guy calling. Uh, I just want to say, first, like I don't have uh, any prior relationship experience, never had sex or even kissed someone. Uh, And I'm not totally confident in what I would want a relationship either. I've also suffered from depression and social anxiety has caused me to lose some friendships in the past. Uh, but recently I've gotten on medication, been seeing therapists for quite a while. Um, and even though I still live with my parents, uh, I am a recent graduate and I'm actively working, saving up money to move out. Uh, but recently I started talking to a woman who's my age and she's a single parent. I was wondering sort of with the context of my lack of experience in mental health, uh, so it would be, you know, I wouldn't be mature enough, so to speak, uh, to handle dating a single parent. Am I basically uh, jumping into the deep end with a uh, first relationship like this? I do know that your advice is to, you know, usually hold off meeting the kid until things appear to be more shaping up to be long term and committed. Uh, but this woman is related to a family friend. And as such, uh, during the summer, I would see both her and her toddler fairly frequently. So uh, if I do pursue a relationship with them, um, how would you suggest being distant enough 
with the child so that I wouldn't cause any uh, emotional trauma or distress if things didn't work out. It's not so much that you're jumping into the deep end of the pool. I think the problem here is you're way out over your skis to jump to a different aerobic activity. You don't mention that there's been any interest on her part that's been expressed. Maybe that was just an omission and maybe she's interested in perhaps dating you. Maybe that's been made clear to you by mutual friends. Maybe there's some spark there. But even if that has been established and there is a romantic interest, you're still gaming this out a little too far into the future. What you need to do if there's mutual interest is spend some time with her alone. Go on a few dates. Don't worry about how it's going to impact her toddler at the outset. That's a question you face a little bit further down the road. If you guys go out, if you hang out, she gets a babysitter or if your parents are willing, they look after this kid. There's a web of connection here, family, friends. She's connected by extension to your family and your parents. If they're willing to watch your kid while you guys go out, go out, go see a movie, go hang out, go have dinner. See if there's a rapport and a spark there. If there is and you continue to date and you begin to get serious, you're right. You don't want to bond too quickly with the kid because if the relationship doesn't work out, which most relationships don't and you've never had one before, so the odds that this one won't are pretty high and that's okay. A relationship can end, as I said a million times in the show, and still work out and work out for you. This could be a training wheels, get your feet wet, returning to the pool metaphor, first experience of having a relationship. It doesn't have to turn into a lifelong commitment for your getting involved with this woman to have been worth your time, to have been a benefit to you, and to have been worth her time and a benefit to her too. We're social animals. We need some sort of contact with other human beings who, who take an interest in us, sexually or otherwise. And you can be that person for her now and she can be that person for you now and that doesn't mean you're going to be those people for each other eternally. It doesn't mean you have to be those people for each other eternally. And it doesn't mean you failed if you're not those people for each other eternally. But if it goes on and you continue to date and you get more serious about her, you will have brief interactions with her kid. What you don't want to do under six months, really under a year, is spend a lot of time bonding with her kid. You don't want to become this very special friend who's taking the kid to the movies, taking the kid to ice cream, taking the kid to amusement parks, because then if you break up with his mother at nine months, you're not going to see this kid again, and the kid is going to be deprived of you, somebody he bonded with, somebody he was led to expect would be playing a significant role in his life going forward. Just like you don't make premature commitments in romantic relationships to the person you're dating, and that's a bad sign and a sign of bad judgment – and a push for a premature commitment is often the sign of an abuser, you don't make a premature emotional commitment and establish that kind of bond with a child of someone that you're dating. Don't do that prematurely. But a year, year and a half down the road, you're still dating this kid's mom? Then you can risk bonding. It's a little bit of a gamble, but what you're gambling on is, I do have a future with this woman, and I'm going to be a presence in this kid's life going forward for an open-ended amount of time and I'm going to step up and I'm going to play a parental role in this kid's life. But yeah, you want to wait on that. But right now, all you need to be thinking about is asking this woman straight up out on a date, make sure that she understands it's a date. Be unambiguous when you say, I would like to take you out on a date, not you want to hang out, you want to see a movie, you want to get something to eat sometime, ask her out on a date. 
see how it goes, ask her out on another one, see how it goes, ask her out on another one. You may have some incidental interactions with her kid. You're picking her up. The kid's there with the babysitter. You can say hi, then go. That's not a problem. And then jump into this end of the pool or perform this double lutz when the time comes, which will be a year, year and a half from now. Hey, Dan, I'm a 40-year-old male who has been having some recent fantasies that feel kind of offensive, specifically about my tomboyish, witch-ish, lesbian friend, specifically them in a more submissive role, while I'm in a more, well, not just submissive, but playing against their gender role as actual boys, while I am something of a leather daddy in a very 70s mustache, athlete chap leather daddy. So my question really is, is this as offensive as it feels like it is? Because... I feel like I'm culturally appropriating somebody else's fetishes. I'm not gay. I'm a straight male. But I kind of keep thinking about these shaven-headed women as boys submitting to me. That feels wrong. It's not wrong to fantasize about it. It would be wrong to say something to your friend about it. To essentially lay out this impossible scenario where you're suddenly a gay 70s leather daddy with a big bushy mustache and assless chaps and your butch lesbian friend who is a woman is suddenly a gay submissive male. That's impossible. That's not going to happen. And it would certainly clear your relationship with your lesbian friend if you just threw that out there or unburdened yourself or felt obligated to confess your fantasy sin by telling her about this, by coming clean, by being honest. No, 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 no. You're having a weird bank shot, impossible fantasy about somebody in your life, something that is never, ever going to happen. And, you know, the human mind is infinitely perverse and we can go anywhere and do anything in our fantasies. But in addition to having a right to our fantasies, we have an obligation to have filters and this is a moment where you need a not even a good filter, just a fucking common sense, good judgment filter that says, yeah, I probably am not going to say something about that. Don't know where that came from. It's not going anywhere because I am a straight guy and not a 70s leather daddy and my butch lesbian friend is not a gay boy and is certainly not interested in me. And so it's never going anywhere. So we're just going to let it rattle around in my erotic imagination until it is replaced by some other random sudden seizure of my erotic imagination by some random outside stimuli that resulted in blah, God knows what's next. But in the meantime, until that happens, until this impossible fantasy is supplanted by another one, keep your fucking mouth shut and enjoy. Enjoy your crazy secret fantasy. Beat off to your heart's content. Everybody else is, I promise you, everybody else, even people who would scold you for yours, for your inappropriate, not okay, appropriative fantasy. They have their own inappropriate, not okay, appropriative fantasies that they're furiously beating off to in private and probably feeling terrible about, which is why they're yelling at you about yours if you were foolish enough to tell someone who would yell at you about yours. I promise you, anybody who yells at other people about their fantasies is externalizing an internal conflict about their own fucked up fantasies. So yeah, keep your mouth shut and a towel handy. Hey, Dan. A... Guy I met through FET always canceled on me, and I'm not especially kinky, so 
what really bugged me about that was the canceling and me having spent saved time for him. He's a foot worshiper, and that was fine. I get a massage out of it. That's great. So very intermittent, almost only seen him like three or four times in person, maybe. After the last cancellation was like three or so months ago, and then he popped up again and said, can we schedule something? And I just said no and blocked him because in the context of all the other guys that I'm blocking right now because of that, I'm kind of, I've had it up to here, but I'm having second thoughts because I figured out a solution for his situation, which was if I charge him for making the appointment, if I charge him 200 bucks, which I don't even need, but it doesn't, it's always nice. And then he can come or not come. But if he doesn't come to my appointment, then at least I have the money and um, I don't have to be angry. So I've thought about going back on blocking him and proposing that to him uh, as a boundary of mine. But I just wonder if that is against FETS rules and if it's also endangering me because that I'm doing something possibly illegal and could get caught. So I just want your opinion on that as a solution to the anger at the unreliability of, well, really most men that I run into, but whatever. Looking at FetLife's terms and conditions, and they ban soliciting or selling any kind of sex for hire, soliciting for clients, for phone sex operators, professional dominance, and on and on and on. So yeah, you might run afoul of FetLife if it gets back to them that you're reaching out to people via FetLife and offering to hook up with them for a foot worship session for money. That said, seems to me that you could legit reach out to this guy and say, you stood me up a couple of times. That pissed me off. So here's the deal. If you want to meet up, I require a deposit. You give me $200 in advance of that date. You show up. I give you the $200 back. You don't show up. You forfeit the $200 for me. And if you make it clear that it's just a sort of Findom light leverage game, maybe that'll turn him on. Maybe he'd be into it. Make it clear you're not charging him for sex. And if he actually shows up and you have the sex, he gets his money back. It's more of a holding $200 hostage situation where the hostage will be returned safely to its family if your demands are met. And your demand is a pretty simple one. Don't make an appointment with me that you're not going to show up for because that's fucking rude. Hi, Dan. 30-year-old lesbian woman calling. So I've been seeing this woman officially for about two months now. It started off pretty hot and cold that evolved into a serious monogamous relationship um, over the course of a month or two. I'm super into her, and she seems really into me. Recently, she left out of state to visit family, and I stopped in to check on her place and her dogs. When I opened the drawer to her bathroom to get flossed, I found an open notebook, and curiosity got the best of me, which I hate to admit, and I opened it. Inside, I read that she really likes me but doesn't want to touch me. Now, she wrote this towards the beginning of our relationship, and about two months have passed. The thing is, her actions are much different now. She seems super into me, she seems super into touching me, and she seems super into me touching her. But sometimes I do notice that she will get high or drunk before sex, which honestly is a turn-on for me. It's not to the point of inebriation or that she can't function, um, just to kind of loosen up. Um, But now I wonder, is she faking it? Is she getting high and or drunk to be able to sleep with me? I can go on pretending I never read this, but I'm wondering if I should talk to her and out myself for reading her journal or if I should just pretend like everything is okay. Honestly, I'm not sure that I can. 
given our history, um, just kind of worried that maybe she's just really not that into me and um, she's just faking it to appease me. I know I dug myself into this hole, just not sure what to do. A, a general point before we talk about the specifics of your situation. We're always faulting people for not going on dates or not contemplating perhaps accepting an offer for sex from someone that they're not initially physically attracted to, someone who isn't their physical ideal. And what we'd like to see is more people willing to see the person inside, see past the superficial physical traits and love the person and not the body. And then when someone does that, and this may be a case where someone did that, somebody Maybe this woman initially wasn't attracted to you, but the more she got to know you, the better she got to know you, a spark came and she suddenly was able to transcend whatever it was about you that initially wasn't ideal, didn't appeal to her. And she found out what it was about you that turned her on and tapped into it. And now she, from the sounds of things, enjoys having sex with you and sometimes enjoys getting a little drunk or high before sex, which people do all the time, even with people that they're attracted to. People don't only drink or have a little hit of pot before they have sex to power through sex with someone they're not into. They do that to enhance sex, to loosen up and enhance sex with someone they are into. The problem here for you going forward is that you found an open notebook in her bathroom and then you say, then I opened it. So I guess it wasn't an open notebook. You found a notebook in her bathroom and you opened it and you read her journal. You invaded her privacy. And in so doing, you didn't learn something that you had a right to know or that would benefit you to know. You didn't open her journal and find out she has a secret family in Omaha that she hasn't told you about or that she's dating six other people, half of them guys, while you two are in a monogamous lesbian relationship. You didn't find that out. What you found out was at the very beginning of the relationship, because boy, you really paged back through her journal at the very beginning of this relationship a year and a half ago, she felt a little ambiguous about whether she was actually attracted to you physically in addition to being attracted to you emotionally. Now she is, and now you have to go to her and say, what's up? I can't imagine a scenario under which someone in your position is not going to address this directly because it's going to eat at you. You need an assurance from her that what I described at the beginning of my response to you is actually what happened. And you have to be mature enough to accept that, that initially, physically, she wasn't clicking with you, but that came in time. The more she got to know you, the better she got to know you, you began to click with you physically. And the sexual component that she doubted would be there at the start kicked into gear. And now she's happy to be your girlfriend. If she tells you that, and that's likely to be true, can you accept that? Or are you going to worry for the rest of your life that she's lying to you for reasons? You don't live together. If she wanted to end the relationship, sounds like it'd be pretty simple to end the relationship. She might end the relationship after you tell her that you read a year and a half worth of her journal and invaded her privacy. But that's the risk you're going to have to run because the only thing that's going to make you feel comfortable in this relationship, in her bed, on her body, her on yours going forward is the reassurance that only she can provide. But you're going to have to tell her what you did wrong. And before you ask for reassurance, you're going to have to lead with an abject apology because what you did really fucked up this relationship potentially. In the short term, definitely fucked up this relationship. I'm not pronouncing it dead. You guys could come through this fine, better, stronger. But for right now, this is a crisis. This is an inflection point. Good luck.
Hi. So cis female out here living in Trump country, I manage a fitness center in a country club. And um, everything's normal. You know, people coming in, doing their little exercises, breathing in and out, making some noise. We have a little music playing. It's fine. But every now and then, like one out of every 10 guys will come in with this guttural, groany, rhythmic breathing that sounds like they're having sex or who knows what, but it's over the music. It's loud. This is a gym for seniors. Um, we're not a bodybuilding gym, right? They're not doing crazy exercises. They're doing like a plank, something super simple. And it just sounds like they're having the sweetest orgasm. Anyway, is this a thing? Just curious because it's really annoying and I wish it would stop. Is it a thing for people to grunt in gyms and, and for some people in gyms to grunt in ways that make people who aren't them, other people in the gym, people who work at the gym, feel uncomfortable? Yeah, that's a thing. That's a thing that happens. Not just in gyms patronized by older folks in Trump country. People complain about that in gyms everywhere. And there's nothing you can do about it. People are exercising. They're going to make noises. Some people are going to make weird noises and loud noises. That's why you wear headphones and that's why you crank up the original Broadway cast recording of whatever original Broadway cast recording you happen to be listening to at the gym. Hi, Dan, Nancy, and youth. I'm in a newly open relationship of 10 years and we have responsibly discussed our terms of openness together. The problem is that I get turned on by talking about and sharing our experiences, and he wants a more DADT style open relationship. Um, he seems to like the idea of it being taboo and sneaky. So how do we negotiate this? This isn't a case where someone has to lose, where someone has to pay the price of admission, and you're either going to have to not share, or he's either going to have to share and somebody loses. This is an instance where you guys can both do your thing where you can share. You said it turns you on to share your experiences. Share them. If it doesn't turn him off for you to share your experiences, share your experiences. It turns him on to have a secret. Well, let him have a secret. That doesn't mean he has to have a secret forever. You can share your experiences as they happen. And I think the compromise, the deal you put out in front of him is you can have your secrets, keep your secrets, but every once in a while, like every six months, once a year, we get super high or we you know, have a night in a hotel where you tell me a few of your secrets from the past year and crank me up and turn me on because it turns me on to hear your stories. So you can tell me your dirty stories once in a while. So you get to have your secrets, but I get to hear your stories and I get to share my stories and not have to keep anything secret, and everybody wins. Hi, Dan. Um, I have been dating my boyfriend for now about six months, an amazing relationship. We spend almost every day together. I would say we're both madly in love with each other. Everything is great. However, in the bedroom, he has trouble getting off by me you know, performing oral on him or from me bottoming. Um, the only way he seems to get off is by jerking himself, essentially. My concern is that the relationship is so awesome. However, you know, when we do look at porn, he does look at Twinkie. He tends to go towards Twinks where I'm, you know, a hairier guy. My concern is maybe he's just not physically attracted to me, but he's in love with me for every other aspect. And before I get even deeper into this relationship, I'm not sure what to do. Okay, well, we have to separate out some issues here. Potentially, this is a case where maybe you're not your boyfriend's physical ideal, but... Your personality, everything else you bring to the table, 
he loves you and he transcended whatever limitations his physical ideal places on his erotic imagination and he's into you. But what worries you is you can't blow him to completion, uh, that he can't fuck you to finishing, that he has to stroke himself. Well, that's an issue that some people have irrespective of how attracted to their partners they might be. Some people – whether they have death grip syndrome or they just need to hit their dick in a certain particular way that the inside of a mouth or a butt can never quite hit their dick in order to climax, some people have to finish themselves off. And a lot of their partners have anxiety about that, worry that means their partners aren't really attracted to them when that's just how some guys' dicks work. In the same way, some women need a vibrator in order to climax. And a lot of those women's partners – call my show and other shows having panic attacks about what it means that their wives and girlfriends can't come without the help of a vibrator. Does that mean they're not really attracted to me? What it means is there are some women out there who require a vibrator in order to get off. Well, the exact same way that some women require a vibrator to get off, there are guys out there, some of them who require their own hand jacking it in order to climax. And it doesn't mean they're not attracted to their partners. It by itself isn't evidence that they're not attracted to their partners. So you need to separate those issues out. And I do think that at six months in, per your impulse, it would be wise to address this directly before you make a larger emotional investment in this guy. So all the porn you watch is twink porn and yet here you are with Big Bear Me. What does that mean? Are you not into me? What he'll probably say is that, well, when he watches porn, he watches mostly twinks, but he's attracted to a whole range of guys, different types of guys. But when it comes to porn, people often go to their go-to. Whatever it is that just zaps their dick in a particular way or stokes their erotic imagination in a particular way. And this could just be his go-to porn. But that doesn't mean it's the only kind of person or guys or scenarios that he's into. And if he says that, if he lays it all out for you, then you have to believe him or not. If you think he's lying to you, if on some fundamental level you feel he isn't physically attracted to you, and you, for your own sense of sexual fulfillment and desirability, for your erotic imagination to be engaged by this other person, if you need to be desired in a way that he can't desire you, you need to be desired as that object, as the physical object that you are, then he may not be the right guy for you. But you need to drill down because if all you have right now is this is the kind of porn he likes, I'm not that kind of guy, and he needs to stroke himself to finish – those two things by themselves are not evidence that he is not also attracted to men of your type and not evidence that he isn't attracted to, that he has to stroke at the end to get himself off. That by itself also not evidence he isn't into you. You're going to have to use your words. You're going to have to have a conversation. Hey, Dan. How's it going? I'm a 29-year-old gay man from the Pacific Northwest. Um, I'm in recovery myself. I'm uh, a year uh, clean and sober from drugs and alcohol. Um, specifically, I was a chemsex addict. So, um, you know, in the past, it was multiple sex partners a day, lots of drugs, lots of craziness. And um, I'm super, super happy uh, in this day and age today to, to not be using drugs. I love being sober. But the problem is that I'm almost completely celibate. And it's not really by choice. It's more because I've gotten rid of all the hookup apps like Grinder and Scruff and Growler. Uh, it was my main avenue before. And now I don't go out to bars or clubs because it feels weird because I don't drink. And I'm not on the apps 
mainly because I find them really triggering and I'm really scared that uh, it would lead me into a relapse as uh, it has with many people I know. So I guess my question here would be, is there another avenue in order to just find casual sex without going to the club or without going on Grindr or these apps? I don't need to be having the same amount of sex that I was having before, but, you know, just a couple occasional partners here and there just to, you know, scratch the itch, if you will. (laughs) Congratulations on your clean and sober one year anniversary. Thank you so much. That's huge. Yeah, it is pretty exciting. It's uh, it's a completely different life that I live now, and <laughs> I'm a happy camper. Good. Yeah. I'm really glad to hear that. And I, I support not going to the bars. I support getting off the apps and avoiding anything that you find triggering, particularly right now. Yeah. Um, one year in, is it's a, it's a good deal of time. It's a real accomplishment. But a lot of people who are in recovery, one year, they're still pretty vulnerable to triggers and, and relapses. So I would urge you to, you know, continue to be unhappily celibate if that's the consequence for the moment of avoiding the bars and the apps. Right. That said, you do have options. Like leaving the house. Yeah. <laughs> yes, I know. Right? There, yeah, there, I guess it's just it's just I guess it's just being so used to using something as easy as, as grinder and scruffing those things. It's just, it's, I don't, I'm not trained in how to properly, you know, find sex with other avenues. Right. You might have to risk finding a connection to, to, to get sex. It seems to me that, you know, there's a lot of things out there for gay men to do. You say you're in the Pacific Northwest, there are gay skiing clubs, uh, gay snowboarding clubs, gay, you, you know, other sorts of sports and gym buddy things. There are things that you yeah. can lead choruses. It's not just like physical activity, but choruses, book clubs. There's a million sort of social opportunities for gay men. A lot of these clubs will also then have like a meet and greet in a bar. And that can be a problem right. for people who are seeking alternatives to the bar. But there are a lot of things you can do, places you can go. They're going to mix you up in a large room full of other gay men, including recovery yeah. groups and recovery support groups. For gay people specifically. You know, one of the old jokes from the 70s was AA was a great place to meet people who were sober. Yeah. yeah. Who could support you in your sobriety. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's definitely kind of frowned upon to sleep with each other in in the rooms because it kind of creates, I don't know, I mean, that's what I've been told. That's the advice I've gotten from people because it can, it can create animosity and other things and then the spaces aren't very safe anymore, right? Yeah, if things go badly. But luckily for you, in a big city, if you live in a big city, there's not just one support group. So yeah, yeah, I know that's true. You know, if you shit where you eat and ruin one support group, you can move the fuck on to another support group. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. That's true. I also have a friend who is in a similar position, where you know he got clean sober, stopped doing chem sex. Thank fucking god. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, apps are the, how people meet these days. It's even the case, you know, when I'm out with my young single friends that they'll see a cute person in the room and they'll think, oh, he's really cute. And, and instead of, you know, playing, you know, eye fucking them from across the room or going and talking to them, they'll get on Grinder to see if they're on Grinder too. I know. I, I absolutely see that. From across the room. So you're going to have to, if that's how you roll, unlearn that behavior and learn how to approach people and say hello, which means risking rejection and getting shot down, which fucking yeah. happens. Um, yeah. But my friend's workaround, my friend who was in recovery, his workaround was he got a buddy that he would get on the apps with every once in a while where he had a profile, but his buddy it was on his buddy's phone 
and vice versa. And sometimes they would hang out together and like get on the apps together and like maybe have a couple of interactions sitting side by side, you know, two gay guys who are, you know, not into each other, kind of brothers, gay guys. And they would facilitate a, like a flirting couple of hours or an hour. Yeah. And then, you know, give somebody, if they were flirting with them on Grinder instead of like an instant hookup, give that person their phone number and be able to continue the conversation without having to be on the apps or even have the apps on their own phone. Yeah. It did mean it's having, actually a really good idea. having the app on your phone just with somebody else's profile on it, which itself can be a temptation because then you're going to go on and look around. But. Yeah, that's. That's that's, a, that's actually good advice. For sure. one, of, just, yeah. one of the recovery truisms is you want somebody who's there to hold you accountable. Yeah. In your sobriety, you can that role of accountability can extend to two people not just holding each other accountable for their sobriety, but for how they date and move through the world and meet other guys and and help each other out with that. Yeah. And that could be an online wingman in a virtual space or a real physical wingman in an actual space. Okay. But I think the best idea is my first idea. Go places, do things. Because that's how, you, even today, it's how people meet frequently. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that's good advice. And, you know, it's, it's, just, it's just not worth it. It's not worth the possibility of going back into, you know, my old lifestyle. Because it's just, you know, the life I live today is just so much more fulfilling. Oh, I'm so glad to hear that. And, and you know, the, the, the yeah. thing is that we have it in our heads that everybody meets on apps these days because the, I mm-hmm. believe the stat is 70, 75% of all same sex relationships began with an online meeting. Right. That means 30%, 25% began with a face to face meeting. Mm-hmm. Two people ran each other at the gym. Two people were in the same snowboarding gay club. Two people mm-hmm. were in the same coffee shop reading the same, but whatever it was, 25%. Mm-hmm. That's, those are good odds. Right. 25% of same-sex couples had their beginning in meet space, not virtual space. So get out there in meet space and you'll be one of the 25%. Awesome. Awesome. I really appreciate your advice. Uh, any words for anybody out there who's currently wrapped up in the chemsex thing and is listening? Oh, my God. Um, you know, it, it's, it can be very scary, um, but it's almost like coming out again when you have to kind of admit that you have a problem. Um, but once you do and you just accept help from other people, um, it's, it's possible to get, pull yourself out of it. Good advice. Just Thank accept you. help. Accept yeah. help. Good advice. Thank you so mm-hmm. much. Good luck. Thank you so much, Dan. Hi, Dan. Uh, I'm a 34 year old male from the East coast. Just moved to Los Angeles about two months ago to pursue acting. I have a question, uh, regarding my living situation. I'm currently living with a stranger that I met from Craigslist who up until this point has been a fine roommate. She gave me a furnished room to live in. And so I was able to just drive out with a suitcase full of clothes and that's all I have. So I'm not sure how much you know about life in LA, but it's actually common here for people to believe in magic. Like if there's a parking space available on the street in front of your house, when you get home, that means it's the universe telling you that you're supposed to be home instead of just that your neighbor happened to leave a couple minutes ago to buy a six pack or something. And I'm personally pretty firmly grounded in reality and don't really get behind the woo woo stuff, but I usually think it's just funny and not hurting anybody. So I just let it be. When I first got here, my roommate told me that something told her to choose my Craigslist post and that I was quote unquote supposed to be here. And I thought that was just kind of encouraging to hear and didn't really think too much of it. 
And cut to two months later, she's had a full psychic break. These are her words. She's hearing voices constantly and has made it her mission to help people see and change their lives. A lot of her sentences now start with, they're telling me to tell you, blah, blah, blah. It's what she wants to talk about 100% of the time, either to me or is on the phone talking about it, and it's just draining, and I find myself having to be out of the house most of the time. She knows that I'm skeptical, so she usually lets me off the hook, these conversations, but keeps saying that we need to talk soon because my skepticism is draining her energy or something like that. And one caveat to this is my roommate is actually very successful in her field and has some famous friends. And apparently everyone is on board with what she's saying. And it seems like I'm the only one who isn't buying it and doesn't think that being psychic is a thing that you can be. And for what it's worth, her voices have only told me things that I already know. If she seemed to actually have some insights, I might be more inclined to at least hear her out. Dan, what do I do? I really don't want to have to find another place to live, but I feel like this situation is stealing focus from my creativity. And do you think I could be in danger? Should I try to get her help? Or is this, is, is this just how people on the West Coast are? I do want to be successful out here, but I really don't want to have to join a cult. I've lived on the West Coast for almost 30 years. And it hasn't been my experience that everyone out here believes in magic. Moved here from the Midwest where I was raised in a faith where people's mothers floated into heaven. Other people rose from the dead. Bren magically turned into wine. There was some magic in my childhood, my Midwestern childhood. There hasn't been anywhere near as much magic or bullshit in my West Coast adulthood. So please don't lump us all in with your voice hearing, psychic powers claiming, kind of aggressive roommate. We're not all like that. The dilemma here is you think this woman might have contacts that could help you professionally. That's what's really at bottom here. She's very successful. She knows some important and powerful people, and you'd like to have her on your side. Are you willing to play along with her hearing voices and telling you things you already know about yourself in order to tap into her network of powerful friends? Are you willing to do that? You could put your acting skills to use. Act like you believe this shit that comes out of her mouth. Sounds harmless. She's just telling you things you already know about yourself. That is what most psychics do. They figure out something about us, and then they tell us about that thing that we already kind of told them about. So while I share your belief that psychic is bullshit, that people aren't psychics, being a psychic is a thing. There are people out there who think they're psychics, who've convinced other people that they are psychics. So yeah, psychics are a thing. A bullshit thing? Not even necessarily a West Coast bullshit thing. Last time I was in New York City walking through the East Village, there were a couple shingles out for psychics. If she's told you that your skepticism is draining her energy, that is a sign that you will not be her roommate for much longer if you can't play along with this bullshit. And it may be in your own self-interest to play along with this bullshit, to advance your career. If you can't play along with this bullshit and you know, I couldn't, if I were in your shoes, I could not play along with this bullshit. I could not wipe the skeptical look off my face. I have this problem with my eyes where when they want to roll, they roll and there's no stopping them. I couldn't play along. But if you want to play along to advance your career, go for it. If you don't or you can't, find a new living situation. Hi, Dan. I am a 28-year-old bisexual, heteroromantic female from a small Midwestern town, and I have a question about uncircumcised penises. 
I've never had a problem with uncircumcised penises. I've had several great experiences with them. But my most recent two, they've been kind of gross. I was dating a guy for several months and um, he's such a clean person, which is what drives me crazy about this whole thing is I know that he's very clean, but his under his foreskin was always kind of gross. And I found myself getting DV very often and it's just very unpleasant. And I had an experience with a new person and we were hooking up and I went to grab his stick and it was just, I already knew before I put like my mouth on it, that it was not good. And I was just wondering, is that like a normal? Cause I've had other experiences with uncircumcised penises that, you know, they were perfectly clean under there and everything was good, good to go. Nothing icky about it. But another thing I noticed is that the only ones that they were smaller, smaller uncircumcised penises that I've had this issue of like uh, grossness under the foreskin, but the more larger ones that I've encountered, I never had an issue with. I don't know if those men were just cleaner overall or these two men just have dirty dicks. But I'm really curious to hear what you have to say about that. What I have to say, I have to say that I am amazed that Nancy and I sat here together listening to your call as she ate coconut curry ramen without flinching. I don't think I could have choked that shit down while listening to your call. This isn't about uncircumcised dicks. You know that from your own personal experience. You say you've been with many guys who were uncut and never encountered this until these two guys. So this is a coincidence. You got two dirty dicks in a row, and that was a coincidence. Another coincidence, those two dirty dicks in a row, smaller than the parade of uncut cocks you were with in the past, that's a coincidence. Here are two guys who don't know how to wash themselves and haven't been washing themselves. You could have, would have, should have, I would have, could have, would have, should have in your shoes said to them, hey, you need to go wash this thing, especially if you think I'm going to put this in my mouth. Your dick stinks. Go wash it. But yeah, let's not extrapolate. You yourself, with your enormous sample size of uncut cocks, should know not to extrapolate from these two data points, these two smallish, dirty dicks, that this is a problem for uncut guys generally because you've been with other uncut guys who did not have this problem. In the same way that Nancy did not have a problem finishing her coconut curry while listening to you talk about dirty, smegma-coated, uncut cocks. Sometimes she amazes me. Hey, Dan. I have always uh, enjoyed Tumblr for looking up porn, and specifically because you could just scroll through it, and they had GIFs, and you could look up a lot of porn sites on there that were like targeted more towards women that had like really hot guys and not really like your typical, just like super masculine porn. What would you suggest that people now go to now that Tumblr is dead? Um, there's not really anything else out there that is similar. A lot of people um, have been migrating, I guess, to Twitter, but it doesn't really have the same functionality. So I'm just kind of curious if you know anything, know another site that people are using to consume porn in this way. Joining me by phone to help tackle this question, Sean Captain is a freelance journalist who writes for Fast Company. And Sean, welcome to the show. Thanks a lot. Uh, thank you for, for coming on. You've written about the Tumblr fiasco. 
Yeah, it became a really big story when they announced a ban on you know NSFW content in December. And what was really interesting was all the individuals and sites that popped up and said, "We'll be you know we'll be the place to go to." Um, and some of them have uh, actually taken off. Now, b- before we get into the new Tumblers or Tumblr replacements, remind people what made Tumblr as a platform for porn and erotica and really the creation of communities so unique. Yeah, I mean, they had a pretty freewheeling um, policy. I mean, they, you know, much less, you know, content control or censorship, obviously, than places like, uh, you know, like Facebook, uh, for example. So it was pretty much just a lot of freedom to try different kinds of things. And you saw all different kinds of communities. I mean, some were around porn and kink, some were around um, mental illness, um, pretty much anything people want to talk about. And there wasn't too much um, restriction around what could be discussed as long as it wasn't something, you know, that was patently harmful, you know, like, glor- you know, like, you know, glorized, glorifying self-harm or something like that. But otherwise it was pretty open. And, and Tumblr was really permeable in this way where, you could repost somebody's thing and uh, to your Tumblr, but it existed simultaneously on yours and theirs. So any additional comments that were added were in both places. And that's how it brought people together. A lot of people with you know minority sexual interests or identities found each other, found community. They weren't just making and sharing porn. They were forging bonds on Tumblr. Yeah. And I mean, something that I saw, you know, in the public conversations and then when I spoke with people, you know, when Tumblr announced the ban um, was they really felt cut off um, from the communities that they were, they were building. And they were they were discussing they weren't just, you know, sharing titillating content, although they were doing that. But they were also really built a community and they talked about issues and and kind of found found their tribe on Tumblr. And what is it about Tumblr that made it easier for people to find those tribes and create them as opposed to Facebook or Twitter? You know, I think some of what you said about the ability that we kind of interlink, you could cross post content and you could sort of interlink sort of, you know, who was posting what and trace things back to where they were. Um, I think the search had worked pretty well for people in terms of trying to find the communities that they liked. And I think just in general, I think the enthusiasm um, of the members on there to want to find people, to want to, to want to make connections, to want to network. I mean, you know, it is, it is people after all, and like it, they say in Soylent Green. <laughs> yeah, like Soylent Green. Um, there's our, you know, 45-year-old pop culture reference for the kids. Go Google it, everybody. <laughs> and, back. Uh, and the, the NSFW content on Tumblr, the adult content, the porn and the erotica, it was a casualty of Fosta Sesta, which was an attempt to combat – human trafficking, uh, but really to drive sex workers off the internet, whether they were being coerced or doing it of their own free will. And and it resulted in Craigslist eliminating their personals. It resulted in this crackdown on Instagram and Facebook of any sort of adult content. And it prompted Tumblr to just eliminate all of its uh, adult content, to ban it. And Tumblr's use, unsurprisingly, plummeted. The numbers of people using Tumblr cratered. Yeah, in October they had. I talked to a company called Similar Web that tracks this. They had about two hundred thousand visits in October. Oh, sorry, two hundred million visits in October and one hundred thirty-two million in April. That's not good so for a tech was company. Huge. Yeah, hardly. Um, you know, clearly that wasn't all people were going to Tumblr for, but that was a lot of it. And I think it generally just sort of put a bad taste in people's mouths, um, whether or not they were heavy users of NSFW, sort of just sort of make it look a little bit less relevant. So most of the people I know who had uh, dirty Tumblr blogs uh, and yanked them or or saw them deleted, 
wound up migrating to Twitter, which, as the caller says, is not as good. It, it doesn't function in the same way that Tumblr functioned. Uh, and, and although there is, you know, you can communicate back and forth, that that permeability and that ability and that the way that people curated. Uh, you know, the best of everybody else's tumblers in a way that wasn't, you know, scraping them, but actually interacting with other people's tumblers and forming that community doesn't work as well on Twitter. Uh, but there was at the time, you know, when Tumblr was coming down, um, when they were yanking the adult content, there was a lot of noise, a lot of people talking about alternatives to Tumblr. I saw somebody created a thing called Cumbler that they were promoting and said, here it comes, here it comes. But what are the new tumblers? Are there new tumblers out there that people are actually using? Um, yeah, there was a flurry that that um, you know came out or were tried initially, and there were often some kind of wordplay on Tumblr. Um, I've been tracking these, and and I found about three that seem actually really promising. Um, one is called ShareSome. Uh, it's been around for a little more than a year, but it just took off um, in December when Tumblr announced the band. The band. Um, another has the not so um, uh, actually maybe the what the the very targeted name New Tumble, um, <laughs> and that also was created in in December, making very clear what it is. And then um, a site that's been around for that really took off recently is called BDSMLR, which um, you know had obviously focused on BDSM community, but you know with the what happened with Tumblr, it's just a lot of people have come over and it's kind of expanded into a more general sort of. Um, NSFW porn kink, you know, kind of site for all kinds of content. Um, you know, they've, they've gone from, I mean, sizes and everything. Um, but obviously you want to go to a site that's got a big enough community and big enough amount of, you know, activity where you feel like you've got a, you've got a strong community. Um, just to give you a sense, these sites like new tumble and share some, you know, went from a few thousand views say in November to over a million uh, visits in April. Um, and BDSMLR went from about 30,000 to over 4 million wow. um, from October to April. Yeah, that's not 200 million, but it ain't nothing. Exactly. Exactly. So walk us through what these sites are like and what distinguishes them from each other. Yeah, sure, sure. So like I said, the, the three that, that look like they're really, they've really sort of taken off, so we're probably going to find the most active community are New Tumble, uh, ShareSome, and BDSMLR. You know, they're all well over a million, you know, visits a month. So you've got a lot of activity going on. There are a lot of posting going on. Uh, New Tumble, pardon, not surprisingly, is a lot like Tumblr. Um, and it was designed to be that way. So you see really similar kind of interface, similar ways that you, you know, find communities that you post and cross post. Now, they're talking about making a lot of changes in the future. That was definitely their starting point. Um, one thing I found really interesting is um, they've got a good kind of rating and moderation uh, system there. So they rate things by like, you know, good for children, you know, okay for work, you know, not safe for work, you know, X rated and even something that's basically things you can't unsee. So <laughs> be careful with those. And you can kind of filter, you can kind of filter what you want to see. Um, that's also, a, like, that's a really yeah. good idea. You know, I did some digging around on uh, on Tumblr when this was hitting the news, and occasionally on just somebody's regular plain old Tumblr blog with kind of middle of the road kink or whatever, you would encounter something you could not unsee. That, that's <laughs> exactly. a good filter option. They also have, have they also have what looks like a pretty promising. Um, moderation system is they actually compensate people to be moderators um, to sort of, you know, if something isn't categorized right to, to make that change. And they don't even bother like recontacting the poster to get into an argument with them about whether or not it should be there. They just, they just recategorize it. Share some, 
they, you know, I spoke with the CEO about this recently, and they, they're really, um, they did key in on a lot of the SESTA-FOSTA uh, changes, and they really are trying to become, you know, a home for people who are sex workers or are, are you know, provide, you know, kind of creating, you know, you know professional um, porn content. Um, now they say they're open to everyone, and there are definitely lots of amateurs and people just using it as a social network. Um, but they're definitely trying to find a home for those those people who have you know been sort of squeezed out of the other social networks. BDSMLR, as the name implies, started with a lot of the BDSM community, but they've just they've just taken off. Um, you know, they've gone from about thirty thousand people visiting the site in October to well over four million um, visits. In April, so and that's obviously been an expansion. So not just the BDSM community, but just the whole general porn, you know, kink community. I think they also look a lot similar to uh, Tumblr, so it's kind of similar experience there as well. So if if you're looking for something that's kind of plug and play, I think probably New Tumble and BDSMLR um, share some feels a little bit like Facebook in some ways, um, which is you know also a popular kind of interface. So that could appeal to some people too. So Verizon Media owns Tumblr. They acquired it, and you know, when you look at those numbers, that, that daily usage, they kind of wrecked it. And now they're looking to unload it, having destroyed right. it. And there was some, there, there was some news that uh, Pornhub was considering purchasing Tumblr and allowing NSFW content again. Is that true? Is that a possibility? Well, you know, there was reporting about that a few weeks ago, and, and uh, the CEO, I believe, of Pornhub had said, yeah, you know, we'd be really interested in this. Subsequently, I haven't heard much, um, and I, I, I contacted or tried to contact both Verizon and Pornhub about this and haven't heard back. Um, so it may still be in play, but I haven't been able to uh, get an update on that. They're not talking about it right now. So long as FOSTA-SESTA is enforced and there are legal challenges winding their way through the courts, fingers crossed, so long as FOSTA-SESTA is enforced, can Pornhub buy it and restore the NSFW content? I mean, I believe so. I mean, it's really, you know, obviously, as we know, it's really targeted around, um, you know, sex workers and obviously any kind of um, child porn content. Exploitation of minors, correct. Yeah, exploitation, exactly. Now, whatever your feelings are on, you know, whether or not sex workers should be included, the fact is that would... Even if that were excluded, it would still allow a lot of the content that had been purged to come back online. Not all of it, but quite a lot. All right. Well, if Pornhub makes news by uh, buying Tumblr and bringing back NSFW content, will you come back on and tell us about it? Absolutely. Sean Captain, a freelance journalist, writes for Fast Company. Follow him on Twitter at Sean Captain, S-E-A-N-C-A-P-T-A-I-N. Thank you so much for jumping on the phone today, Sean. Sure. My pleasure. Hi. I need advice on how to calm down faster in situations with my boyfriend when I get upset too easily sometimes. I tend to blow up, not blow up, but just overreact easily. And in the grand scheme, when I think about things a little more, I understand that I shouldn't have gotten as upset as I do, but I'm not sure how to calm down faster or just understand in the moment that I'm, I'm getting upset over nothing. Um, in some cases, I do definitely find my boyfriend could be a little more sensitive. But in general, I do think that I'm the one that's overreacting. And I just don't know how to handle it. I don't know how to not overreact and how to not get heated fast. We've only been together for four months. It's not super long. But I just I tend to be like that and all all of the time and I don't I don't know why and I don't like it. 
you're angry all the time. You're blowing up at him all the time. You've only been seeing this guy for four months. I want to pin a medal on him for hanging in there despite your obvious anger issues that you are aware of and yet you've done not much to address from the sounds of things. And I can't help you learn how to manage your anger in this response. That's something you're going to have to see a therapist about. You're going to have to see a counselor who specializes in anger management. Sometimes we have a hard time recognizing when a woman has anger management issues because men with anger management issues, you know, in the context of an opposite sex relationship are often a whole hell of a lot scarier because it comes bundled with implied or actual male violence and sometimes physically violent. Whereas a lot of women with anger management issues that are damaging their relationships, it's just about volume and viciousness and words and not about physical threat, implicit, implied, or actually made, or physical violence. Although sometimes it is. There are certainly women out there who are physically abusive with their male partners. But the issue here is that you are aware of this. You are aware of your problem managing your anger and rage. You are aware that it is damaging your relationships. You are aware that this guy is already suffering because of it. You're aware that it threatens this relationship. And so you got to do something about it. You got to do something above and beyond calling me. You got to get your ass into a therapist's office and have someone help you Learn to manage your feelings and your rage and your anger and to find a more constructive way to express your displeasure when you're displeased about something so this doesn't destroy every relationship you're ever going to be in. No one should have to put up with what you describe putting this guy through. I wouldn't urge you to put up with it from some dude and I certainly wouldn't urge some dude to put up with it from you or anyone else. So credit to you for calling me. Now you got to make some other calls. Go find a therapist. Go find a counselor. Get your ass on someone's couch. Do it today. Hi, Dan. Long-time listener, first-time caller. A friend of mine recently separated from the man she's been with for over a decade and is starting to date again. I'm excited for her and enjoying hearing all the details of the men she's been meeting online, and she seems the happiest she's been in a long time. I'm concerned about something she shared with me recently, and I want to get your take on it. She has been exclusively meeting guys on a site specifically for men that are attracted to larger women. This has been pretty great for her because she has never felt more attractive or wanted as she does now after entering a dating pool of men exclusively attracted to her body type. However, she recently started talking to a very attractive younger guy with a big red flag. Things were going well until he made a comment about loving her body, but that he would love it even more if she got bigger. He tells her how much he would love cooking for her and taking care of her. After some further conversation, she tells me he would like to see her over 100 pounds heavier. This is alarming to me, and it was to her too, thankfully, so she moved him into the pile of men that are fun to sex with, but that she would never plan to meet in person. I love the body positivity and confidence she's gaining through this dating site, but she is also self-admittedly at an unhealthy weight to begin with. If she added 100 pounds, she would drastically shorten her life expectancy and compromise her quality of life. I'm happy she has no interest in a quote-unquote feeder, and this guy was fairly upfront about that being his kink. 
However, I'm worried about her meeting someone else on this site based on the nature of it that also shares this kink but doesn't disclose it and instead manipulates her into gaining weight if they begin a real relationship. Do you have any advice for how she can watch out for these types? In general, what are the ethics around the feeder kink? I'm generally sex positive, but I don't know how someone could fulfill this fantasy without severely risking their partner's health. The ethics of a feeder-gainer relationship are questionable. But you know what? Everything is questionable. Everything can be questioned, every choice we make. Uh, I have written in the past about a feeder-gainer relationship where it was the feeder who had ethical qualms about asking her boyfriend who was game and willing to gain and lose weight for her in kind of a cycle that she thought would be erotic and exciting. And she was worried for his health. He's an adult, her boyfriend, and he can make an informed and free choice. If he's not economically dependent on her, if she's not making it a condition of her continued support or remaining in the relationship, then he's free to make an informed choice without any coercion. And as I told her, our bodies are ours. Ours to use, abuse, and since we're all going to die one day, they're ours to use up. And if her boyfriend chooses to shorten his life expectancy by a tiny little bit, or even a year or two, by gaining and losing weight to please her, then he's free to do that. And just as he gets to make an informed choice, she has to make an informed choice. She may be depriving herself of his company later in life if he indulges her fetish and kink in reality as opposed to in role play. So your friend, she's a larger woman and she's attracting attention from guys who are into bigger women. Some of those guys are going to be feeders, whether they're out about it, open about it, honest about it, and direct about it or not. Your friend has already proven to you that she has no interest in being with someone who wants to see her get bigger than she already is, particularly someone who wants to see her at a weight that could imperil her life in the very short run. So She's demonstrated to you some judgment, some good judgment, and she's demonstrated to you that she isn't interested in the kind of relationship that you're worried she may find herself in. You're her friend. Continue to share your concerns with her. Draw her out on the subject of somebody who gets into a relationship with her and then reveals that he's a feeder over time. And what will she do then? And maybe this is a conversation that she needs to have with guys early in a relationship, that she's not interested in getting any larger than she already is. And so if that's what they want, she's not the big, beautiful woman for them. And if she advocates for herself early on, that will decrease the chances of her finding herself in a feeder gainer relationship later on when extricating herself from a relationship after they've moved in together or gotten married or got a kid is harder. So anyway, you ask what you can do for your friend. And it sounds to me like you're already doing for your friend what a friend can should and could do for a friend in this circumstance. You have an ongoing conversation with her, an open conversation with her about her romantic life and the risks that come bundled with it. And you're going to be there for her in the future. And if she winds up in a situation where she's a little blinded by love, then you have to step up and do that difficult friend thing and tell her what you think is going on and why you think this relationship, if indeed she winds up in a relationship down the road with someone who's a feeder, is a bad relationship that she needs to get out of. All right, before we get to your response calls, your tweets. Kate Dashwood tweets, true story. When I first started listening to Savage Lovecast years ago, I was convinced it was at fake Dan Savage singing the theme song. Maybe it is. No, it isn't, Kate. 
That is Tim LaFollette from the indie band The Popovers. They recorded that for us years ago when we did a call for a theme song. We are eternally grateful. Tim passed away about 10 years ago, shortly after he recorded that for us from ALS. And he is dearly missed by his friends, family, and former bandmates. And we are very grateful to Tim still for the awesome theme song. Ah, uh, me tweets recently started listening to the Savage Lovecast, and I am obsessed. I'm honestly learning so much from Fake Dan Savage and the Savage Lovecast. Thank you, Ami. But you're not just learning from me, hopefully. Also learning from other listeners, other callers, and all of my awesome guests. Thank you for getting on board. And finally, Dusk tweets, just heard a great Maddie Corman interview on Savage Lovecast. Thank you for creating a dialogue about a topic most people are unwilling to talk about. Love Dan's views on the importance of how relationships keep people accountable and that isolation does not help. Thank you. And thank you again to Maddie Corman for coming on the show and talking about her new play currently running in New York, Accidentally Brave, about her experiences after her husband was arrested for possessing child pornography. The play is terrific. It's gotten terrific views. If you are in or near New York, Accidentally Brave runs through July 13th. Please go see it. And now your response calls. Hi, this is a comment for Dan. Sex addiction came up a couple of times. And Dan, you said it wasn't a thing. I just want to push back on that a little bit. I think sex addiction very much is a thing. Um, It's not sex that's addictive. It's that people who are susceptible to addiction can become addicted to anything, uh, literally, but especially things that we build up a tolerance to, especially things that can change the way that we feel. Um, And that addiction is characterized by the inability to stop doing it, even when we want to stop doing it. So, yeah, it can be sex. It can be video games. It can be crack. It isn't that those things are addictive. It is that some people are susceptible to get stuck in a loop of addiction. I think that your comments that sex addiction doesn't exist isn't a thing. is kind of unhelpful and doesn't acknowledge the lived experience of lots of potential people out there. That isn't to say that a lot of the nonsense at some of these addiction 12-step groups isn't sex phobic and that our culture isn't sex phobic because it is. And I agree with lots of those points. Hello, Dan. I'm listening to your most recent episode with the guy who feels entitled to sex because he bought some weed, put her parents up in a hotel room. What the actual fuck? Dan, I love you, but you did not come down hard enough on that guy. You decided to put her up in a room. You decided to enter into this relationship without sex on the table You do not get sex unless she wants to fuck you. If you do not want to do these things for her, then don't fucking do them. You creepy asshole. No wonder she doesn't want to fuck you. Uh, Hi, this is a response call about that unholy pylon for that poor, sensitive yoga guy that aired in the last class. Oh my God, that guy was trying to be sensitive and not creepy. And he got this pylon from these self-righteous, obnoxious people because he dared to notice that other people were in the class and they also have bodies. He was inherently creepy just for that. Okay. First and foremost, yoga as like a spiritual kind of practice may go back a few thousand years, but as we know it today, it's less than a hundred years old. Namaste doesn't mean anything like the God in me sees the God in you. It's just a specific dialect, formal greeting. And you know, if yoga is your spiritual practice and you connect to it and it makes you feel good and center yourself and it's not about your physicality or your sexuality, that's fine. I don't want to 
you know, look down on anyone else's spiritual practice. But you don't get to dogmatically and self-righteously use that as a club to pile on to this guy who absolutely doesn't deserve it because he's not some kind of Zen monk who doesn't even notice there are women in his class. Dan, I thought your advice was perfect. And Yoga Guy, if you're still listening and haven't turned yourself away from the world in shame, good for you for being self-aware enough to know that it might be creepy and to listen to Dan's advice to go to the coffee shop around the corner from the yoga studio and try to have some nice, non-creepy interactions with these women you see in the studio. And we're going to leave it there. 206-302-2064 is the number here at the Savage Lovecast. If you'd like to record a question or a comment for a future show, give us a buzz. 206-302-2064. I will be performing live. We will be doing Savage Love Live in San Francisco this Friday night at the Palace of Fine Arts Theater. I'll be there. Singer-songwriter Rachel Lark will be there. And Stormy Daniels will be there. We will be giving advice together, me and Stormy. You loved her when she was on the show. Come to San Francisco, Palace of Fine Arts, and see me and Stormy tackling your sex and relationship advice questions live. Now more than ever, we need to impeach the motherfucker already. Go to itmfa.org and get your ITMFA merch, hats, t-shirts, mugs. The best thing about wearing an ITMFA t-shirt in public is people will ask you what that means. You need to tell them, impeach the motherfucker already. It is fun and all proceeds go to the American Civil Liberties Union, Planned Parenthood, and the International Refugee Assistance Project. You can also gift ITMFA merch. So if you'd like to send an ITMFA t-shirt to, I don't know, Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi, you can do that too at ITMFA.org. Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. Follow freelance journalist Sean Captain on Twitter at Sean Captain. Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech-savvy at-risk youth and Nancy. We'll all be back at you next week with an installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thanks for downloading.